Amen. Thank you. Please be seated. We are in a study of 2 Peter, and if you have a Bible and you'd like to turn with me, we go again to 2 Peter chapter 1, where we uh, continue our um, uh, look at this matter of assurance, or as Peter describes it here of, uh, in verse 10, making our call and election Sure. This is, uh, of course, a part of a much larger context, and so I'd like to read to you again, starting in verse 1, and we will uh, continue to read down to verse 11, but the focus again is going to be on this matter of gaining or giving all diligence to gain assurance. Here now from Second Peter chapter 1. Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained like precious faith with us by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. As his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue, by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises, that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust, but also for this very reason giving all diligence, add to your faith, virtue, to virtue, knowledge, to knowledge, self-control, to self-control, perseverance, to perseverance, godliness, to godliness, brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness, love. For if these things are yours and abound, you will be neither barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these things is short-sighted even to blindness and has forgotten that he was cleansed from his old sins. Therefore, brethren, be even more diligent to make your call and election sure. For if you do these things, you will never stumble. For so an entrance will be supplied to you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior. Jesus Christ. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we pray that you would send that Holy Spirit who inspired this word for our instruction and comfort to apply these words as they need to be applied to every heart. We all long for greater measures of assurance, of confidence, of mindfulness of the very present promises and the sure and steadfast hope that you have given to us in the Lord Jesus, for such a precious faith, for such exceedingly great and precious promises, oh, that they meant more to us day by day. We pray that you would bless this word to our hearts, for Christ's sake. Amen. Well, uh, Paul Little uh, worked on college campuses throughout America in uh, InterVarsity Christian Fellowship and Campus Ministry for 25 years. He said, I have often asked Hindus, Muslims, 
and Buddhists whether they would achieve nirvana or go to paradise when they died. I have not yet had one reply in the affirmative. Other religions can give no assurance because they don't have the kind of God with whom people like us can be assured. Muhammad's successor, Abu Bakr, even he said, quote, I, will not, I would not rest assured and feel safe from Allah, even if I had one foot in paradise. The true anchor of our assurance, given throughout the Bible, is that we have such a loving Heavenly Father as this. A God who is for us, who sent His Son into the world to die for people like you and me. And who can lay any charge against God's elect if it is God who justifies? And who can separate us from the love of Christ? You know, the prohibition that the Lord Jesus most often gave is this. Fear not. Fear not. And yet we still find plenty of reason to fear, don't we? Difficulties, doubts. We have intellectual doubts. Is this true? How can I know it's true? Why does God then seem so far away? We have spiritual doubts. Do I really believe how sure do I have to be? Have I committed the sin against the Holy Spirit? We have practical doubts. Does my life even demonstrate that my faith is real? And where has all my zeal gone? And how come I don't experience things that other Christians say that they've experienced? And on and on. On top of all these doubts and fears, we have our own natural personalities to contend with that greatly affect our feelings of assurance day to day. Some of us are simply more fearful, more critical, more perfectionistic, more melancholy. And this affects us spiritually. And then there are the attacks of the devil who hates the idea of assurance and who is described in the Bible as the accuser of the brethren. He does his work well. And for these and many other reasons, we find that the assurance of salvation is sometimes not so simple to gain or to maintain. And then, as we said last time, there's the problem of false assurance that's so common today, which isn't actually assurance at all, but a kind of carelessness or presumption. It's not that everybody in the world has, everybody in America has assurance. Not what Peter is talking about. Not a mature confidence that describes that he describes from this fruitful life grounded in the precious promises of God. No, it's something quite different. For people are masters at self-deception because of what the Bible calls the deceitfulness of sin. In the Sermon on the Mount, the Lord himself spoke about those on the great day saying to him, perplexed, Lord, Lord, 
Didn't we do all these things only to hear, I, I never knew you? In his parables on the wise and foolish virgins, the talents, the sheep and the goats, and, and many others, we find these characters coming. Lord, didn't we, didn't we, didn't we, describing people who assumed all their days that they were his only to find at the end that when it was too late, they had been indulging in an illusion. Charles Spurgeon wrote, I can understand a man doubting whether he's truly converted or not, but I cannot understand apathy. How can you give sleep to your eyelids until you have known it? Not known whether you are in Christ or not, perhaps unreconciled, perhaps condemned already. I entreat you, I beg you, he says, shake off this sluggishness. Not with so many warnings, and that from our Lord's own mouth. And yet, as we also said, it is not just the falsely assured who need a true and sound assurance of salvation. We all need it. We all need much more of it. For what is assurance but the sense of God's love on the soul, the joy of our salvation, the hope of everlasting life which shall not disappoint us, that is the Christian life as it ought to be lived, that joyful confidence that elevates our whole life, that empowers our witness to others, that comforts us in trial. And so God does not want us forever searching and searching, searching for assurance like a hamster spinning on a hamster wheel. He wants us. He invites us. He even here commands us to give all diligence that we might be assured that the Lord is our shepherd. It can't be right for his children not to know it, to doubt, to wonder. Now, as we've seen, Peter is not writing to teach us specifically about assurance, as, for example, John is in his first letter, but rather to set before the churches of Asia the very conditions of their survival as false teachers and perverse living that always accompanies it have now come in like a flood. And Peter wants these Christians not to be carried away by the false teachers, but rather to grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ so that they could be strong and stable. That's the purpose of this letter, the larger purpose in which this line about assurance finds itself. And so to encourage them to pursue a well-grounded, mature faith, Peter, in context, is describing, uh, laying out for them the way of growth and the benefits of diligently following in that way. Many benefits. We're considering fruitful assurance, making our calling and election sure, but there are many other benefits that he mentions here, a, a fruitful Christian life, uh, never stumbling, having a rich welcome into the kingdom of God, not being blind or having spiritual amnesia. Well, it's, it's in this uh, context that we consider the particular matter of an assurance, making our calling and election sure. And so last time we considered four basic questions. What is assurance? And why do we need it? And why do we lack it? 
And how do we get it? Now, as promised, today I'd like to give you now some practical help on what it means to pursue this assurance with diligence. And uh, I'd like to start with uh, my first point, making progress in the precious promises. A lot of Ps. Progress in the precious promises. Starting where Peter starts, making progress in the precious promises. Now, if somebody asked you why you would be assured, as the old question goes, if you die tonight and you stand before God and he says, why should I let you into heaven? What, what would you say? And if the first word out of your mouth is, I... You have started already in the wrong place. That is not where you're going to be able to find strong, confident assurance. Peter did not start with you. And if you are going to have a biblical, confident assurance, we must start where Peter himself started, with the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, that's something on which you can build a foundation for assurance. The righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ, and the precious faith that we have received in Him, and the exceedingly great and precious promises He's given. So you need to have this rooting to begin with. We need to start with the kind of God that would give people like us assurance. You don't have that, you got nothing. So, we have to start with the kind of God with whom we can have assurance, the kind of God who makes such promises to people like we ourselves are. For Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Whew! That's a place we can start. Do you believe that? And what did he tell those sinners? As he declared to the ground, most assuredly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has, present tense, has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death into life. And when Jesus speaks so confidently, we should believe confidently. When he says most assuredly, we should be most assured. The one who comes to me, he tells the crowd, I will by no means cast out. And oh, Bunyan said he had a tug of war with the devil over that very text. He had no assurance, but he had that text and he had a hold of it. And that was, the, that was about all he had. And that one text went back and forth, back and forth until he won the fight. The one who comes to me, I will by no means cast out. Do you believe that? Now, I, I, I stress this to you because if you start this great question of assurance by diligently looking at your navel, you're either going to end up proud or self-deceived, or despairing. You need to start to make any progress with the righteousness of your God and Savior, Jesus Christ, and His exceedingly great and precious promises to people like us. And in a hundred different ways, we are told the good news, that God made Him, who knew no sin, to be sin for us, that we might become the very righteousness of God in him. That is good news. And if we confess with our mouths and believe in our hearts that uh, uh, confess in our mouths that Christ is Lord and believe in our hearts that God has raised him from the dead, we will be saved. 
and, and, and I know that today doctrine is largely despised, experience is greatly promoted, but assurance starts out of sound biblical teaching, people. We must understand that salvation rests upon the merits of Christ alone, His righteousness. And when we look to Christ and the kind of Savior that we find Him to be, the kind of people that He met and the kinds of things that He said to them, and, and, and we realize, well, there's hope for me, a certain hope. People who are biblically ignorant, who don't know such promises, who aren't well acquainted with the Christ of the Scriptures, or the God who made them, will have very little in the way of assurance. You have to make progress in the precious promises if you want assurance. And if it's assurance you need, we go to the promises, point one. Um, now, uh, l- last time I just gave you the summary, the theological abstract of, of how it is that assurance can be gained. And it's in three connected and mutually reinforcing ways, if you remember. God's promises to us, the growth that comes from us, and the Spirit's testimony in us. Promises to us, growth from us, Spirit's testimony in us. It could be said in other ways. Our confession of faith uh, lays it out in similar terms. But many years ago in a Sunday school, somebody gave me a picture that somehow all these years has stayed with me and helped me remember. And it's really nothing profound. In fact, it's actually kind of silly, but sometimes it's the silly ones that stick with you, and I hope this will help you too. Uh, Any of you engineers out there know the strongest geometrical shape? All right, so you could at least, you know, do uh, do a little hand motion or something, right? The triangle. Yes, thank you. Uh, I've been told, anyway, it's the triangle. And if you can imagine a triangle with uh, three beams, coincidentally. (laughs) But beams that don't all have the same strength. Imagine that the bottom beam that supports the other two is made out of steel. Okay, there's like the the steel infrastructure. Okay, and then two more beams that rise out of that that are made out of wood. The bottom beam, which is by far the strongest, is bearing the weight of the other two. And the steel infrastructure of assurance is the promises of God. The exceedingly great and precious promises of salvation that he's made to us. The center of our thinking cannot be ourselves. It must begin with a God like this who made promises like that. You know, you, you have to start with this Savior about even whom the Pharisees were complaining. This man receives sinners and eats with them. Hmm. Start with him. That means if you call on him today, that you too can rejoice. Did you know that? Most assuredly, he says to you, whoever hears his word and believes in him has everlasting life. That's the place to start. You could, you could have it today. Every Sunday morning, we make this pilgrimage through the gospel uh, in this light order of worship, beginning with the glory and majesty and praise and holiness of God, followed by a prayer, not only of adoration, but of confession of sin and our faith in Him. And then we have some sure declaration from His own word of the forgiveness of our sins. And and this is where we must begin, in ourselves, 
we're up and down. We feel this way one day, we feel that way another. We have beans for dinner, our assurance is gone. We must take our stand on God's sure and certain word. The promises he's written down so that we won't forget. We hide those in our hearts. And when we don't feel saved, we must bring them out and look at them again. And remember to have more respect for God's promises than our feelings. You can gaze at your navel so long that you don't gaze at Christ. I've known people who have done that. Great care must be taken so that we don't trust in our self-control, perseverance, godliness, and so forth, where we often tend to go to first. And when we do, we lose our assurance, and properly so, because our foundation is in Christ who came into the world to save sinners, a strong foundation of all other assurance. And all other things must grow from this trust in Him. Make progress in His precious promises if you want to have assurance. Second, giving diligence, we must grow in God's grace, growing in God's grace. Using Peter's uh, language here, we could also say the, uh, uh, the particular graces to which the promises are made, as our confession puts it. Growing in God's grace. Okay, so we have these precious promises, and we see that's important. But then we have the question, how do we know that we believe those promises or that we really believe those promises? Well, you can ask that question a lot and go round and round, or you know what you can do? You can simply start to act on those promises. You can simply obey his word, and you find that you've answered your own question. Because when we start seeking assurance, we start seeking it in the wrong, at the wrong end of the equation. We we are to start with growth in Christ. That's what Peter says in, the, in these various ways, growth in grace and having a fruitful faith. And as we make our way, as we find ourselves down the road with a fruitful faith, we found that such diligent has, diligence has brought us assurance. But we don't start with our search for assurance. And Peter is not actually even asking the question here, are you truly elect? Although that's a fair question. But in context, what he's doing is he's, he's, he's telling the Christians to grow and how to grow and then listing some of the benefits of being a growing Christian. You know, when you grow, if you have these things, you'll have a fruitful faith. You're not going to suffer from spiritual blindness or amnesia. You're not going to stumble. You're going to have a rich welcome into heaven. And in the meantime, you'll be assured of God's special love. That assurance is one of the many things that you see we are to gain from growth. Or to just give you an analogy. If a farmer wants assurance, he, that... Uh, well, let's let me put it this way. A farmer wants fruit. Okay, what does he do? D does he begin by digging in the dirt to see if there is anything alive down there? No, he starts by digging in the dirt to plant some seeds and watering and weeding and pruning and cultivating a growing plant day after day. And then one day he goes out and he finds ripe fruit. You don't start by digging for fruit. You start by growing a plant. 
and at the end you find fruit. Well, in the same way, Peter says, look, if these Christian graces that have grown and so forth are yours and abound, then several things will happen. You'll neither be barren or unfruitful, you won't be blind, and you'll make your calling and election sure. Are these things yours? Are they abounding and growing? That's what he says here. If these graces are yours and abound, then certain things will happen. Are they yours? Are they abounding or growing? You don't make your calling and election sure by some decision, but by a direction. A direction Peter describes as growing in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. Making every effort to add to your faith, virtue, knowledge, self-control, and so forth. Be that good farmer. Bring forth fruit. You make the effort to add these things to your faith and abound in them. To uh, be a fruitful blessing then to others. Do, Do you have them? Are you increasing in them? Are you blessing others with them? Peter says if you have these three things, then three doors will open to you. You have these things, they are abounding, and they're fruitful. You find that you are not going to be unfruitful or barren. You're going to be useful. You're going to be assured. You're going to reap a rich reward. Now, we've made very little advance, it's true. But we must not despise the day of small things, right? Maybe it's been a tough year and the tomato plants are just not looking as good as they should. Well... We shouldn't despise the day of small things. The hand of the diligent makes rich. Get out there and water. This kind of growth makes many rich, including you. Um, Our catechism summarizes those uh, benefits. You might have learned this. the, The benefits that flow from justification and adoption and sanctification or growth in grace. What is it that we get from these things, according to the Bible? Assurance of God's love, peace of conscience, joy in the Holy Ghost, increasing grace, and perseverance there until the end. Well, the first one is the one that we're thinking of. Assurance of God's love. And that requires some effort as a farmer to bring forth fruit. Or Don Carson puts it this way. People do not drift toward holiness, godliness, prayer, or obedience to to Scripture. We drift toward compromise and call it tolerance. We drift toward disobedience and call it freedom. We drift toward superstition and call it faith. We cherish the indiscipline of lost self-control and call it relaxation. We slouch toward prayerlessness and delude ourselves into thinking we've escaped legalism. We slide toward godlessness and convince ourselves that we've been liberated. Well, this is Peter's reason for urgency. The, the, the church is, 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 is showing signs of being infiltrated. And people are going to go one way or another. You cannot be satisfied with just staying where you're at. You're going to be growing and rooted in Christ, or you're going to be swept away with the error of the wicked he describes in the next chapter. 
But you cannot be satisfied with no growth. If one of our children doesn't grow, stops growing, we would be very alarmed. We would have that child at every specialist in this town and the next. Not to grow is a sign of illness and danger. And in such a spiritual world, it brings other ailments with it, as Carson points out. I mean, you not only lack this fruitfulness, this clear insight, this assurance, this protection against stumbling, the rich reward in heaven promised here. Besides all that, Thomas Brooks put it this way in his book on assurance, proving it from Scripture, a lazy Christian will always lack four things, comfort, contentment, confidence, and assurance. That's spiritual sickness, people. Or Dr. Beakey puts it this way in his work. A a believer, listen to this, a believer cannot persist in high levels of assurance while he continues in low levels of holiness. See, the the reverse of this order is also true. A believer cannot persist in high levels of assurance while he continues in low levels of holiness. I can't continue in a high level of assurance of the love of my dear wife, he says, if we are unfaithful in our marital relationship. If we continue in low levels of marital commitment, we can't have high levels of assurance of our love. Holiness is critical for the maintenance of high levels of assurance. A high level of assurance cannot exist with a low level of obedience. Get it? So the reverse is also true. Okay, so if you're careless, if you're thoughtless, if you're living a more worldly life, if you're grieving and quenching the Spirit, not only are you robbing yourselves of the very things that are listed here as this strength of comfort of assurance, you're introducing all kinds of sicknesses, which may be, well, Peter is worried that in many cases, in chapter 2, it's already been sickness unto death. And Peter has been at pains to spell out the kind of growth and grace that every last one of us needs. We need to have it. We need to abound in it. We need to be fruitful and bless others. And you can never have as much of any particular mark as you wish, of course. (laughs) In fact, compared to Jesus, we are always going to be pitifully, wretchedly, painfully deficient compared to Christ and compared to the perfection of His law. I mean, as soon as you think you've achieved some standard that makes you then feel satisfied, well, welcome to becoming a Pharisee. I thank you, God, that I'm not like other men. That legalistic religion that lowers the bar so that you're over and everyone else is not. No, no. God's law is perfect. It says, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And when you achieve that standard, please come and see me. A Christian is said to have something of this divine nature, something of the various qualities in our life. We are said to have something of them and to be growing or abounding. And that means that we must always still long for more and grieve that we've made so little progress. But this is the way. Uh, Growing, what did I say here? Growing in God's grace. Salvation is not gained by man's effort. We say that often enough. But the assurance is gained by giving all diligence. And if somebody believes today, we are going to rejoice and praise God. But we will not be satisfied until, as Paul says, Christ be formed in you. You new believers, you children, well, you you are perhaps just where you need to be. 
but you are not to stay there. Peter is anxious for all the children of God to grow to maturity for many reasons, including making their calling and election sure, lest they fall into the error of the wicked. And that means you may have to fight for assurance. Fight through fruitful growth, not being satisfied with less. So point two, by diligently growing in God's grace, you'll make your calling and election sure. Sorry to belabor that, but that is the emphasis of our passage. We have one more thing at the end of this chapter, one more important part of our assurance that I'll have to bring in a few more testimonies. I'll call point three, seeking the Spirit through the Scriptures. Seeking the Spirit through the Scriptures. The Holy Spirit has everything to do with our assurance, and yet we are not to seek Him somewhere outside of the Scriptures, but, well, in the last part of chapter one, Peter reminds us, verse 19, that we have the prophetic word confirmed to which uh, you would do well to give heed as a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation, for prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved or carried, uh, borne along by the Holy Spirit. Uh, End of the chapter. So this is where he's going next. This Holy Spirit is the one whom we are are to know. He he not only has inspired the scriptures, he is also the one who brings home to our hearts the power of God's word so that the sun rises in our hearts. And to be clear, the Spirit is said not to speak something new or unscriptural to us, to whisper in our ear, at some particular time, you are truly God's elect. Um, That's not how things work, at least ordinarily. Rather, we are told in so many places how he comes to convict us of sin and righteousness and judgment, and then to testify of Christ and to bring the things of him to us, to bring home the truth of the word that he himself has inspired for us, and so forth. And so when this happens, the testimony of the Holy Spirit that we are the children of God, comes home. Again, not something separate from the Scriptures, but through these very Scriptures that he himself inspired. All right. Now, sometimes there's a lack of appreciation for the Holy Spirit's work in this way. For example, uh, Dr. Beakey, who did his Ph.D. research on on assurance, he... uh, he said, there was, there was this elder recently at, at one of our elders' meetings, he was weeping because of how affected he was reading Thomas Boston, right? Good old Scottish divine. And, and, and Dr. Beakey said, he was, he was crying at our meeting. Here he was just filled with the Lord. But then it was just a few days later, Dr. Dr. Beakey asked him how he was doing. He said, I, I just don't think I'm coming to the Lord's Supper. He said, everything is dark in my soul. It's filled with doubts and struggles, with assurance. And Dr. Beaky said, what are you talking about? <laughs> what happened just a couple days ago? He said, oh, that was just reading a book. Um, he was not acknowledging what the Lord had done. 
certain people tend to respond this way. God, God just lays something sweetly on their hearts. The Holy Spirit gives them special blessings, and they are quick to forget or devalue them. Sometimes they even feel that they're being more holy when they push these things away rather than embracing them and just thank the Lord how blessed that moment was. You know, some people used to keep, keep journals just to record some of these special insights and to remember just how wonderful it is when, like, again, Bunyan again says, you're, you're there at the, at the top of the, of the mountain and the delectable mountains and you could, you could see all the way to your destination just for that moment. We need to realize that the Spirit still speaks in His Scriptures. The Bible reminds us of a work that He comes to do to communicate God's fatherly love so that by Him we cry, Abba, Father, and the glory and reality of divine things and we're not always aware of it, but the Holy Spirit is bringing this truth home to our hearts. Some of you learned Heidelberg question one. What is your only comfort in life and death? Answer, that I am not my own, but belong, body and soul, in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who's fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has delivered me from the tyranny of the devil and wa also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. But now listen, especially if you learn this, listen to what you learned. Because I belong to him, Christ by his Holy Spirit assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. People run into trouble when they seek the Spirit from some weird way apart from the Scripture that He inspired. And again, my dear Dutch brethren, the, the Synod of Dort wrote a warning, a warning that's especially important in this revivalistic South, where if you ask people about their assurance, the first thing they want to do is describe their experiences. And, and they may be true experiences, fine. But here's what Dort records, Head 5. We ought not to look for assurance from a particular revelation, contrary to or independent of the Word of God. I mean, it might come, I suppose, and, you know, Paul had a voice from heaven and all that, but we ought not to look for assurance from such a quarter. The Word of God is the King's royal way to assurance, and when it comes home with power in the heart, when the when the day spring rises in your heart, as it says here, it produces the normal conversion experience, the normal experience of conviction to sin, fleeing to Jesus, finding new life in Him that includes life and fruitfulness. Don't despise those ordinary experiences. If you're raised in a Christian home and you grew up with that experience, don't despise it. For some people in the South especially, that's not enough. You've got to have some other experiences, man. They're looking for something more dramatic or more mystical. And there are people that have some very special and dramatic things happen. That's great, but it's not typical. True conversion does not require a Damascus Road experience and a voice from heaven.
But point three, the Spirit speaking through the Scriptures, bringing it home to your heart. Not so much seeking assurance as seeking the Holy Spirit's blessing on His Word. Giving heed to that Word as a light shining in the darkness until the day dawns and the morning star rises. And the author of this Word is able to bring it home with sweetness and power and that is a place where we can find blessed assurance. Jesus is mine. Now, in, in conclusion, I thank you for going through these things with me at, at some slower pace than last time. And I hope that you see that especially with these last two, with these wooden beams, which are there and important and are connected to the promises, um, the fruit in our lives and the testimony of the Spirit, I, I hope you see that nevertheless, despite all of this, we will not experience unbroken assurance or the same amount of daily confidence. It, this does not mean we won't be staggered with self-doubt and humbling grief or other difficulties. The Scriptures are very clear that the greatest of all saints have doubts and fears, falls and failings. They, they don't experience these things all the time. And sometimes when circumstances are conspiring against them, they may feel that they're cast off. And the Psalms are particularly helpful to find that there's so many saints just like us, people raised up for the purpose of recording their spiritual experience to give us more confidence our assurance fluctuates day by day. It ebbs and flows. And, and my deeds prove too little. And we need to start again with the deeds of the Lord. But in times of darkness, what matters most is not how I feel, but what's under my feet. So I say to you in conclusion that Psalm 77 is one of many, many helps in this way. Psalm 77, we find a man in trial. We don't even know what his problem was, why he needed help, why he was in such distress. But we do find a sense of his frustration and abandonment and that time has passed and that hopelessness has overwhelmed him and he can't sleep. And where is the Lord? And it seemed to him as if the Lord had forgotten him. It's, it seemed to him, frankly, that his faith wasn't working. It certainly wasn't doing him any good and it had gone on for some time. And he remembered a happier time, but maybe those times were over forever. And, and he wonders in verse 7, will the Lord cast off forever? Am I gone? We have ten verses of misery. And then what does this godly man do? What's the turning point? This finally says in verse 10, this is my anguish. But... I will remember the years of the right hand of the Most High. I'll remember the works of the Lord. Surely I'll remember your wonders of old. I will also meditate on your work and talk of your deeds. Your way, O God, is in the sanctuary. Who is so great a God as our God? You are the God who does wonders. You have declared your strength among the peoples. And did you see the, the switch there from I, 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 I to you, 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 you? Um, he, he, he switches. He goes on to remember and recall all, all the mighty things that God had done to deliver his people from Egypt and again and again been their help. 
And, and by the end of that psalm, the pervasive I has just disappeared, and all the objective facts of the faith have captured his attention and our attention, and it's all you, 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 you. And I point this out because the man's circumstances hadn't changed a bit. The reasons for his misery were all still there, as much as before. But meditating on the God and his ways and his works, this sense of abandonment gave way to the knowledge that the God who had delivered him, delivered them again and again, would not abandon his own. And he still couldn't understand what God was doing or why. But he, he found that he could rest secure in God himself, even if he had nothing else. That this was a God that he could rest in even if he could see nothing else. Now, so much of our life is sad and hard and painful, sometimes exquisitely painful. And things are happening that we can't avoid, can't explain, can't overcome. Disappointment, sickness, death around us, within us. My own disappointments. My own life disappoints me in so many ways, and I disappoint myself. And yet, after all this, I cannot escape the truth of God, that there is such a God who has done such wonderful things, who spared not his own son. And when I am lost in me, myself, and I, well, I can then go to the cross and I can see things right again. Even if I can only see that one thing, it's enough to know this man receives sinners. And I can find there the prodigal's father running with legs of mercy, wrapping around with arms of mercy, weeping with tears of mercy, and saying, my son, my son, who is lost and is found, let us rejoice and be merry. So I begin and end at the same place with you today, where we must begin and end our search for assurance with a God with whom you and I, people like us, can be assured. Let us pray then. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for sparing not your own Son, for doing such amazing things, one whom you have sent to be true God and true man, to live a life of suffering and pain and want and poverty, to know every emotion that we have, to be acquainted with our grief and all of our needs, that he would not forget what it was like when he was exalted upon his throne, that he would so identify with us and be a substitute then for us, that your wrath would be upon him, that through his sufferings, he might not only deliver us, but conquer the devil who held us in bondage through fear of death and who's risen to a new life to give to his people by the Spirit that not even death can separate us from you. And, oh God, we, we pray that you would forgive us when we have indulged in self-pity. We have been our own enemies. And we come to you again to lift the burden from our shoulders that is dragging us down and that we might find in Jesus one 
who can release us from fears and sins alike. To loose us from the snares and tricks of the devil as we take up the shield of faith that will extinguish all his flaming arrows that with such a precious faith, even in trial, that we would...